So, how was that? Okay. Sleeping meditation. Huh? Sleeping meditation. Sleeping meditation. Mindful sleeping. <laughs> yeah, be mindful sleeping. Yeah, you've got these drops and you suddenly switch gear and you seem to be very sleepy and not much ability to really stay with it, mind drifts a lot, but often that's just what, what has to happen until you re-establish yourself and taking a break really. You're not that far out, otherwise you'd be on the floor by now. <laughs> Okay, so um, no particular topic in mind, but the idea of um, talking from the here and now, inspiration from the here and now reminds me very much of what the, uh, the Buddha's um, Dharma is based upon. Buddha's Dharma is not so much um, a doctrine as a particular way of handling techniques, systems, thoughts, actions, livelihood. It's a particular way. And the epitome of this way is it's described as santitiko, or directly accessible. It's not something you've got to, you know, go through some intermediary to figure out. You can see it for yourself. You can have direct access to it. It's not a matter of believing in Buddhism or believing in the Buddha, but you can directly, you know, it's something you know for yourself. Santitiko, Kaliko, it's timeless. It means it's just, it doesn't really matter what time of day, year, how old you are, what century you're in. It's the same. It's timeless. It doesn't give you timeless perspectives. Same now as it was 2,000 years ago. Ehipasiko, Ehipasiko means it invites you to come and have a look. He's saying, you check this out for yourself. Have a look here. Uh, so it's a, like almost a, an invitation for you to look you know, directly. Yeah. So it's not saying how it is. It's saying, you come and find out. Wopanayiko means it, it's furthering. It means as you look in, you start, to, you start to see certain things. You start to learn certain things. You start to see cause and effect. You start to see how the kind of input that you make in your mind, the way you think, the way you act, your attitudes, have effects. And there are good effects and there are bad effects. So you begin to see, hey, this, this leads to a good effect. You know, if I think this way, if I have this attitude, it leads to these effects, which are, give me a positive feeling, positive perception. So because of that, you can develop. But you develop really through this almost trial and error method of checking out yourself how your mind is behaving and what the results of that are. When we mean mind, we mean attitudes. So you come with a particular attitude of what you should be or what other people should be or belief system or what you're going to get out of life. Or you can come with an attitude of openness, what you can give, interest, you know, what, what, what you can receive, how you can 
and you see the results of those attitudes. You see the results of holding on to particular thoughts of grudges or resentment or of jealousy or and see what that feels like. And you see the results of developing themes such as gratitude or contentment or compassion or what that feels like. So the Buddha himself said when he practiced, he started to check out these uh, particular roots of mental action. He said there are thoughts that are based upon harmlessness, thoughts that are based upon um, freedom from ill will or loving kindness, thoughts that are based on simplicity, letting go of, of sensory craving. He said when I think like that, the attitudes and the thoughts and the emotions that go along with those particular inclinations, they make me feel good. Also, when I act upon them, they're good for other people. So it's good for myself, it's good for others, I'll do more of that. But when I think thoughts of cruelty, or ill will, or of getting things for myself, it makes me feel tight and tense and jealous and greedy and unsatisfied. It's bad for other people, it does neither of us any good. So why don't I drop those thoughts? Why don't I just check that thought process, say no, no, I won't go that way. Yeah. And this uh, discovery, cause and effect, karma, instant karma, immediate karma, cause and effect in the mind that led him to complete awakening. So this is furthering. <laughs> this is a furthering process. Yeah, you just see what start to see what works, yeah? uh, and of course it's we are our own laboratory. Check it out for yourself. But the Buddha said, when I found it that this way, then I start to see this, and I start to see that after a while, if I could think less, my mind got even more peaceful. So actually, calming and quieting your thoughts made it more peaceful. And when it was calm and quiet, I could see directly into what created thoughts, so I got deep understanding. And so the process of complete awakening occurred through this through this ehipasiko, santitiko, akaliko, ehipasiko, opanaiko process. And the other phrases that he used to describe the Dhamma, pachatam, means for yourself, know it for yourself. Uh, it's not, nobody else can really give you the Dhamma, other people may give you some inspiration to find the Dhamma. Other people may give you some themes where you can investigate the Dhamma. But in a strange way, the Dhamma can never be taught. <laughs> you know, you can wave some flags, you can say, give some pointers. But this is the nature of Dhamma. It's not a doctrine, it's not a book, it's not a dogma, it's not something that has to be discovered in yourself through your experience, and it's called Vedidapo, means that you experience by that which is wise. So, obviously we have uh, all kinds of impulsive uh, energies and moods, um, we can have belief systems, but essentially the Dharma is that which is, is developed through wisdom, and wisdom is essentially the process not of intellectual knowledge, but of clear discernment. This is better than that. That's wisdom. This takes me to misery, this takes me to happiness. That's wisdom. Uh, this causes suffering for other people. 
this doesn't, uh, this causes happiness for other people. And um, one of the features of, of Dhamma wisdom is that we begin to also recognize a very important point to discern the differences between short-term benefits and long-term benefits. Yeah. So as an example, when the Buddha was teaching the monks and he said to the monks, monks, um, this was a time when all the training rules hadn't been properly established yet. The rule about eating in the afternoon, eating in the evening. And he said, monks, um, I don't eat in the afternoon or in the evening, but I feel very comfortable. So he said, well, Lord, we eat in the afternoon and we eat in the evening and we feel comfortable too. <laughs> So why should we abandon that which makes us feel comfortable? And he said, well, and he gave a long talk. <laughs> and he said, there are things that give you short-term happiness and things that give you long-term happiness. And things that give you long-term happiness are things such as simplicity, renunciation, yeah? Because your mind gets stronger. Your mind isn't continually pecking at something or you know, looking for the next thing to hold it up. Your mind becomes independent of uh, sensory, sense contact, sense impressions. Just take what you need. Even though this isn't, we can't say this is the most exciting way to spend an evening, let's go out and renounce together. <laughs> it's not that kind of happiness. It's the happiness of feeling, hey, I don't need, I, I can be without that, I'm fine. Yeah. I'm free, I'm a free person. I have, no, I have less needs for this. I can sit quietly. The Buddha said he could, sit quietly for seven days and seven nights under a tree without moving and feel completely happy. He said the king of Benares can't do that. The king of Benares with all his wealth and his 500 wives and his thousand slaves and his armies and elephants and all that um, still is in a state of continual worry over whether somebody's going to invade his kingdom, somebody's going to poison his food, Somebody's going to run off with his elephants. Somebody's going to run off with his jewels. You know, so he's going to stay in continual worry and fear and has to continually wage war on other kings. And this is supposed to be the highest, you know, most prestigious position in the kingdom. And the Buddha says it's like hell. <laughs> because, you know, being able to sit quietly with nobody bothering you, not having any concerns, any worries, any agitation with other people, sitting in your own body for seven days and seven nights and feeling completely comfortable. This is uh, a, a supreme strength, authority and independence. And then you feel you can move around freely in the world. And you can also die freely. You haven't got the fear, the regrets, the worries, the agitated mind states. So this is, uh, you know, and so there are long-term benefits. Yeah. And a wise person is someone who begins to sense, yeah, I've had short-term happinesses, and you know, I don't feel that much better for it. You know, I had a nice meal last night, and now today, so what? I went to a show last weekend, it was fun, but by Monday, I was already restless and agitated, you know. I went out shopping, had a shopping spree last weekend. Went out shopping spree, bought myself a new watch, handbag, dress, you know, got home. By the time I got out of the package, I was already bored with it. 
story of a, a man, a businessman I knew who used to do a, a big deal and then he'd buy himself a special present to celebrate the deal. And one day he decided he'd buy himself a Porsche luxury sports car. Which if you're a man, this is this is this is the highest, you know. It's men love love toys. <laughs> the Porsche is the best toy you can have. And he went to the showroom and cost I don't know how many hundreds of thousands of dollars or whatever it is. And it's perfect, immaculate machine. And he got in it and switched on, drove out the showroom, drove around the block, cruised them, he hardly got out of second gear drove into his house, his driveway, drove into the garage, and he said, when I switched the ignition off, I looked at my hand, and all that I realized, I didn't want this thing anymore. <laughs> I was already bored with it. <laughs> and that's what turned him towards the dumber. But sometimes it's the case that, uh, you know, when you, you start to sense you've really got enough, enough in terms of your actual needs and yet there's still this kind of restless more more should ought to get she's got one of those everybody's wearing that well look what it says in the newspaper about one of those and you oh and you look what, what you've got in your back cupboard you know and you realize this isn't going to work this this way of happiness isn't going to work and you look at say, developing honesty and trustworthiness and morality and generosity and you look around after five years and you see what friends you've got and you've got good friends you've got friends you can ask a favor of you've got friends who are going to support you you've got friends who you can believe what they're saying <laughs> and think ah this is long-term happiness yeah. so it's wisdom and wisdom really asks us to spend a little long, longer time reviewing the causes and the effects, the results of our actions and our thoughts and our inclinations, we start to look at the effects of them, which lead to, and then we start to understand what happiness actually is. Is it excitement or is it a sense of freedom from stress? They're slightly different, aren't they? One is the presence of something that sort of bursts and moves through you. One is the absence that makes you feel cool, quiet, relieved, different happinesses. Which do you prefer? Which is going to do you the best in the long run? Yeah? Check it out. When you're getting old, yeah, how many of those short-term happinesses are you going to have? Um, or are you going to have the sense of freedom from regret, freedom from pressure? You know, this, I think, is very important to understand this kind of happiness because it's the happiness that, by and large, in the world, you don't get presented with. You know, the advertising companies don't tell you about renunciation, generosity, <laughs> or, you know, simplicity of needs, or it's all exactly the opposite, isn't it? Yeah. They say things like, indulge yourself. Is quite quite disgusting, really. <laughs> when you consider the resources there are on the planet and how beautiful it would be if we could share them with other people rather than indulge ourselves. Yeah. So, look at things like the Buddha said, when you realize that in yourself, 
you know, that can appreciate generosity. And all of us can appreciate that, but sometimes it doesn't, it's not the most paramount. So you think, oh, generosity. Oh, that's, I really like that. It's really nice when you give something to somebody for that you make them feel happy and you get a sense of your heart extends towards other people. That feels really good. And then you think of uh, when people are generous to you. Oh, I want to do more of that. And you think of uh, morality, when people don't abuse each other, when people are honest with each other, when people don't cheat on each other, when people aren't violent towards each other. That's the way it should be. So, so these two are the foundation stones of the Dhamma. This is where you begin to really sense your wisdom. Because when you look at, you ask these questions, it's your wisdom faculty that says, that's better. The generous is better than the selfish. The moral, the virtuous is better than the revengeful. Or the getting my own back. Or the telling a lie. You know, that's better. So this is how you exercise your wisdom. This is, you know, anybody who can, who is capable of, of understanding this Dhamma will see these qualities in themselves. They will easily understand these qualities. And they'll begin to check, understand these qualities. They'll begin to say, well, since this feels good, why doesn't everybody do it? Why doesn't everybody share and, you know, be patient and kind? Why don't they do it? And then he said, the next thing you see is the trap of the sense pleasures. You know, that's why people don't do generosity. <laughs> because, you know, the sense, sense world carries these little uh, bombshells, you know, called greed. It's like you, it carries a greed bomb, and you take it in, and it blows your generosity apart. <laughs> yeah? Or it carries an intoxication, you know? The sense world carries alcohol. Ah, oh, you can get really high on that. You take that into another bomb. It blows your morality apart. Yeah? And then once those are gone, people start getting spiteful, jealous, I want this, arguing, fighting, and so the whole thing starts. So you see, once you see the danger that there is in the sense world, you realize you have to handle this carefully. Because there's no way in which we can exist without sights, sounds, touches, tastes. Yeah? These happen. There's nothing wrong with them. Everybody has got sense organs, that's what they're supposed to do. But what you can do is you can handle them rather than be dominated by them. And this is a wise person. So a wise person starts to see why generosity and morality decline, and they start to see the need or the, the benefit of renunciation. Now renunciation is a pretty chilling kind of term for most people. <laughs> <laughs> but it really means being able to sense the difference between what you need and what you want. Yeah. That's wisdom. So what do you actually need and what do you want? Now as far as I can see, when I go to what I want, it just gets bigger and bigger. <laughs> I can really develop it. You know, I want to go on a spaceship to Mars, I want to da 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 da. When I get to what I need, it gets smaller and smaller. Just a few basic points. The need 
food. They need shelter. They need something to wear. Uh, if I get sick, I need medicines. That's what I need. What I want, well, you know it. I'll have one. <laughs> but then you recognize if you start to look into the difference between those two and feel how when you come to what you need, it's very finite. You know, you may need a car to get to work. Yeah. As a lay person, you may need a car, telephone, whatever. You know, these things are necessary. You've got children, you've got to get some money. But you always keep that, that basic wisdom element checking out the difference between needs and, and desires, wants. Because by and large, everything in the world is trying to get you to increase your desires. Okay? Now, if you can go to the, to the supermarket and just decide, before you go in the door, you want to buy enough food for the meal and some washing up liquid and uh, some toothpaste, and you go to the supermarket and that's all you get, you've scored a big success in terms of renunciation. Because you've got to walk along these alleyways, this is bright, shining things, things. Free production, special offer. Get one of these. Get two for free. Get more. You end up with a whole trolley load of stuff. Where did all this come from? <laughs> I only went in for some dog food. <laughs> so renunciation isn't just for, for monks, it's for everyone. Yeah. It doesn't mean have nothing, it means no difference between what you need and what you can be seduced by. <laughs> and he said when you have this in, quali- in, in, in practice, you then establish the foundation for the Four Noble Truths which as you probably are full aware are the liberation teachings of the Buddha. Because then you actually have a firm foundation and your mind is not out of control. Your mind is not reckless. Your mind is not deluded. It's not easily seduced. And then it can start to examine carefully where where does stress, suffering, tension, where does that happen? Where does that happen in me? What causes it? Where does it stop? And what are the kind of ways of life, thoughts, actions, meditations that help to bring around the stopping of suffering and stress? Well, this is the base. So, you know, when you've established those, you've started to get that going. So this is all to be discovered by yourself. Yeah? And the Buddha didn't say that seeing is suffering. He didn't say that shopping is suffering. <laughs> he didn't say, well he did say that the origin of suffering is hanging on, clinging, grasping and being burnt up with wants. That's the origin of it. So then when you understand that you begin to see the wisdom element in knowing the difference between a sensation and a feeling. You know? feeling comes up and it can intoxicate the mind. You see something, it's just the scene. It's just the scene thing. And you define what it is. And the, the kind of perceptions and feelings that come up about, oh that's nice, or oh I want one of those. You know the difference between what is seen and what is imagined. And you know the imagination is easily captured by this uh, 
understand art, which is thirst, hunger, craving. You get to know what craving feels like, kind of reach out to suck something in. Yeah? And so you, when you can actually discern that, you can stay with the real, let go of the fantasy. Yeah? So this is your basic Buddha teaching, uh, realization. It's a wisdom teaching. Realize it by yourself. <laughs> and also, though we've, uh, today we've been looking into some meditation, hopefully a few thoughts, a few suggestions find a place for you, find something you can work with. But remember, Buddhism isn't really, it's not a meditation teaching, it has meditation within it. It's not a philosophy, though you can have philosophies developed from it. It's not really a religion, though you can have a religious attitude towards it. It's basically it's a way of life. It's a way of life that encompasses everything from the most mundane to the most sacred, from the most uh, obvious matter-of-fact things like digging a ditch or washing the windows to the most subtle things like the movements of your faith or love, most subtle material things, and it covers the whole span. And every one of them, you don't follow, but you check with wisdom. Is this conducive to stress, or does it cause liberation from it? Is the way I can have an attitude towards that that frees me, or do I have an attitude towards that which, which traps me? So you check out the whole of your life under this particular scrutiny of, of wisdom. Yeah, this is where the Eightfold Path develops. But to reiterate again, the very foundation of the Eightfold Path is right view, and right view, very simply speaking, says there are such things as good causes and good effects. Yeah? And, you know, check out which are the good causes, the good actions, the good basis to come from, what results are. Everything you do, everything you think has an effect. Find for yourself which are the good ones. Follow and develop those that will be for your long-standing welfare and happiness. Yeah. And so this is the foundation for the path. So I think I will stop there for now because I just wanted to kind of open up the uh, kind of overall presentation of the Dhamma. Is there anything specific, either? In terms of Buddhism or in terms of your own experience uh, that you'd like to ask me about, I'd be very happy to uh, spend some time talking with you on it. Just pause for there for now.
but and yet we want to accommodate this reason learning in our life. But it's so hard, like the king, he puts in his responsibility towards so many things. That drives him to have a lot of, you know, fear, craving, desires. Is that because of the responsibility he feels towards the kingdom? And the Buddha that renunciates, it's so easy because there's nothing else that is attached to him. So as a layman, how do we find a balance? <laughs> it's hard. It's really tough. Yeah, and like, I sit beside. <laughs> well, uh, believe it or not, I have quite a few responsibilities as well. <laughs> and I do, I, for a start, um, I recognize the state of mind, responsibility state of mind. And, uh, to me, responsibility means the ability to, be, to respond. Now, there's a difference between response and just being trapped in something. So when you find that your life is leading you, rather than le you leading your life, that your responsibilities are in fact moving you along, rather than you're picking them up, then you can recognize you're perhaps you're losing balance. Do you understand? You know, it can sometimes feel, I think, for people that they're almost on a treadmill. The faster you run, the faster the treadmill runs. And you, you know, you're not really in control of it anymore. You have so many obligations and uh, things to do that you're not really, you don't have any control over it. So, a very useful thing, just as a, as a basic um, reflection, has its effects. And so every day, at least once a day, one should reflect that one is going to die. And he may even die today. He may die in the next hour. So, when you think like that, you think, right, now what is the prime responsibility? <laughs> yeah? Most important thing. You know, when you recognize that as far as I can see, no one has ever got it all done. They've never finished their work. I've never seen anybody who says, my work is completely finished. What happens is, the work has now finished me. I'm so exhausted, I can't do it anymore. <laughs> so recognizing that you can't get it all done, you say, okay, tonight we're going to die. What's the most important thing? And that, that helps, because it's an interesting one. You put it in your own mind, and you start thinking, well, for start, the most important thing is that... Um, I live with clarity. I'm clear about what I'm doing. That's the most important thing. And then you start to use that. Think, okay, well, when I come to a more clear and balanced place in myself, I think, yeah, yeah, okay, I've got to do that. Yeah, okay, yeah, right, well. And you start to recognize you've been through so many of these experiences time and time again. You know, of, you've got to get this done. And, and even when you got it done, it wasn't done, because there's the next thing. So some of the um, seduction of the trance begins to wear off. And you're like, you just got to take it a moment at a time, and just do the best you can, you know? Um, and then you look at really, when you consider um, 
you know, looking back on your life, what would you like to remember if this is your last moments? I'd like to feel I've done some good. I'd like to feel I've done some good for someone else. I'd like to feel I lived honestly. I did the best I could. So you start to establish, through, through death, you start to establish life because you begin to establish the right intention. Now what can I do with right intention right now? You know? So some things you see, it gives you a way of handling your, your work or your, your, your responsibilities for a place of right intention. And certainly when I you know, reviewed a lot of my life, I think for some of it, I can't do, I can't do much about that. I'd like to, but no. <laughs> uh, you know, some things you just can't fix. And you start to see what ones you can fix, that you feel that would have been a good thing to have done. You know, that would have been a really good thing to feel. I have accomplished that. You know, I looked after this person, or I, you know, or I finished a particular project. Uh, I, I went through some struggle, but it really caused me to develop myself. You know, it made me stronger. So reflection on death does help us to filter out some of this mental horror that comes in, and it's, it gives you some perspective. Because when the mind is overwhelmed, it loses its ability to get perspective, to see which are the real priorities and which are that would be good if, and well maybe, and well yeah. But. <laughs> And, uh, yeah, that, that intentionality. And then developing paramita. Generosity, patience, wisdom, truthfulness. That's the way I want to live. Because yeah. uh, otherwise we just get caught in the praise, blame, success, failure, gain, loss, other people's opinions, and you never can, you're never going to win anything out of that. Just thrown around in the wind of the world. Yeah, but I think it's very important for all of us to remember that our, our real responsibility is get the mind clear enough to, to be able to be responsible. <laughs> you know, so it is necessary, I think, to spend some time in meditation or, or considered reflection every day. Otherwise, your mind's not going to be in good shape. If your mind's not in good shape, whatever you do is not going to not to work. Yeah. Interesting enough, it's not necessarily about being quiet. I was noticing as I came here today, building work. I've been a monk 35 years. For 35 years, every monastery I've been in has been building work. <laughs> Every place. It's always building right? The sound of concrete mixers and electric drills. And so one of the reasons isn't 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 about being quiet and tranquil. There's always some action going on, but it is about developing right intention. You know, and generosity and effort. Thank <laughs> you.
to get. Your mind just goes round and round in circles. Well, that's what mindfulness and full awareness are about. Sati and Sampajanya. So mindfulness is that, that faculty that we have to keep something in mind, to bear something in mind, hold something in the mind, like, like kind of concentration. Okay? You know, so keep with the one thing, don't let the mind run around. And then full awareness is the ability we have to really, from that base of mindfulness, to sense how things are affecting us, how the mind is behaving. Yeah. So with that, you can sense uh, whether you're, you're, you're using your thoughts or whether your thoughts are just running away with you. If your thoughts are running away with you, it's time to come back into the body. Just feel breathing in, breathing out. Or use a mantra, Buddha, when you breathe in and breathe out. Or even just every time you think, just touch your fingers. Every time your mind wanders off, just do that. So it just keeps checking that sense of the mind running away. And um, calming the mind, again, if you, if, you do, if you use that system of just breathing out and holding your out-breath, and take it maybe five seconds longer, and then slowly breathing in, you won't be thinking. It stops you thinking. And immediately, mind comes back into the body because if you're not breathing the body goes, hey, hey, what's happening? <laughs> not too long, just a little bit longer and then, it, and then slowing, that will slow your breathing down and the, the more steady and quiet and deep the breathing gets, the less the mind thinks. And the thinking mind depends upon a particular energy. It depends on if you had a gearbox, you have to be in third gear before you can think. And when you calm it down, you go back into first gear on the, you know, on the box. And so your mind just can't really think very much. Because you, you turn the energy down. So that helps to check the thoughts. And then when you deliberately bring up a thought, such as, um, such as remembering your own virtue, your own goodness, Oh, I didn't, uh, I didn't do anything good today, I'm going to stop. <laughs> You're looking in the wrong place. Don't look in your thoughts, look in your heart. Yeah? Look at where you feel joyful and beautiful and loving and, yeah. Ah. Oh yes, when you remember something beautiful you did today, that you offered food to the monks. And just remember that, stay with that impression. So, you know, you come out of your head and into your heart. And then that's where you find the set of depths that you need. That's where you get your food from the heart, not from your head.
Get out of the past. Yeah. Clearing the past. Yeah. How do you clear so the past isn't causing you problems? Is that your question? Um, how not to let it get caught in the past? Cause problems because it can't be helped. So, how, how do we move on? Yeah, well, this is. Uh, practice of the heart, practice of the emotions and the intentions of the heart, chitta. So when we talk about mind, the English word mind is often most commonly is a translation of the Pali word chitta. Chitta is more, probably more usefully translated as heart because it's the seat of our impulses, our Percept our impressions, our emotions. So that causes a problem. Um, and you have to develop a great heart. The heart can be made bigger. Not the physical organ, but the, the emotional span can be bigger. We generally make it bigger through kindness, compassion, appreciation, and equanimity for Brahma Vihara, and we make it deeper through Samadhi. So when it becomes, so that's the way you develop it. Width ways, you develop it depth, and then the heart is very big. And the big heart can forgive, the big heart can let go, the big heart can um, make amends. Yeah? Problem is that when uh, the heart is small, it's easily um, knocked around. And generally when we feel a sense of blame or regret, then we get smaller. You think, oh, oh. And then you should do that. You say, oh, I didn't mean to do that. And you feel yourself shrinking and shrinking and shrinking inside, trying to get away from that painful feeling. Yeah? Yeah. So it's very common that when we feel painful emotional feeling, the heart shrinks. Yeah. Same like the body, when the body shrinks, the heart shrinks. The shrunken heart is frightened and uh, confused. Now all of us have done unskillful things. All of us have perhaps not done the good things we should have done. I can think back and think, oh, I wish I did that. If only I said that to my mother. If only I treated my father like that. If only I'd been a bit more generous to my brother. And if only my school teacher and my girlfriend and this and that, oh dear, failure. <laughs> no? But, and that's all, you see, that's the sense of regret. Now, when the heart is big, we say, I have made mistakes, other people mistakes, make mistakes, everybody makes mistakes. What can I learn now? I can learn, now I can say, learn to be wise, learn to be generous, learn to be compassionate. So I make that firm intention. 
and all the wrong I may have caused or the right that I didn't do, I will now generate the quality of goodwill towards myself and towards other people and it acts as a kind of cleansing agent like it's a big redemption this is where redemption comes in in Buddhism not from up in the sky but from in here it's saying everybody makes mistakes yeah? now I remember a friend of mine uh, she, her father passed away and she looked after him as best she could but then he passed away and she felt she hadn't done all she could have done and maybe she'd been a bit impatient with him sometimes because sometimes when people are sick you know you get so tired you start to get impatient and you get a bit snappy or you lose attention or you think I didn't do this and I should have done that and I didn't tell him this and I I never said I really loved him very much and I could have done that so you get this regret and she's sitting with this thinking about it and then she's sitting there thinking of her father and she just hears her father's voice her father's voice saying I don't expect you to be perfect <laughs> you know we all make mistakes he makes mistakes you make mistakes your children make mistakes I make mistakes join the crowd you know <laughs> so what are we going to do about it well for a start let's be compassionate and generous to each other say I'm sorry I probably today I've made a mistake <laughs> and I'll make mistakes tomorrow uh, and my, my, what my contribution will be is when you make a mistake I won't, I won't attack you with ill will that will be my way of contributing say if you make a mistake to me I will forgive you and not act in good will this will be my way of, of clearing past karma yeah? so you set up the great heart in, in that sense of kindness and compassion and also a very important appreciative joy appreciate the good that there is like we're not a continual mistake <laughs> we're not 100% mistake so you notice the good things that you do and the good things other people do and uh, the kindness that there is and uh, you know and equanimity means you understand cause and effect karma we're all living in accordance with our karma this is, this is the way it is right now it goes up and down this is the great heart now the other way you can is through samadhi where through practices such as mindfulness of breathing you make your mind steady so it has a really firm basis now what breathing in and out will do if you, if you, as you bring your mind to it is your mind becomes more and more um, steady firm bright a mind that's steady firm and bright does not does not get shaken easily it's like a firm rooted tree it doesn't blow away so we experience praise blame pleasure displeasure the mind remains steady and this is the other way we make the heart great give it a good foundation and you feel those you know those thoughts come up other people say things you think okay maybe you're right tomorrow I'll try better that's all <laughs> you, know, you can't you don't get into that neurotic habit of trying to ch change something that happened five years ago it's <laughs> not going to happen is it and then the sense of real forgiveness towards yourself 
question is on. My question is on dependent origination. <laughs> <laughs> right. How long have we got? People that have ethics and morals are intricately woven into the fabric of dependent origination. But how has science failed to understand this? How does what? How has science failed to understand this? Well, because science isn't necessarily ethical. <laughs> you know, you have different ways of looking at the world. Science is a particular way of looking at the world which is very, very effective. But it's always, it leaves out the observer. It says, you know, this is, you can, it sees everything is out there. Yeah? And science um, is not about ethics. Ethics is a different way of looking at the world. You know, science is one way of looking at the world and handling material objects in a very, very intelligent way, but it doesn't, it doesn't deal with ethics. Ethics is a different way of experiencing the world, because then you're experiencing the world here. This is why scientists can invent terrible, you know, technology can invent terrible weapons. Because it's no, you may be ethical, but it's not necessary to be ethical to be a scientist. is that you stay in relationship. So that it's a child, particularly the children, because the children learn as much through their, their hearts and their nerve endings as they do through their brains. So we understand, you know, if the mother or the father is sympathetic, then we feel comfortable. You know? So we, all of us, when we're going through grief, it really helps if just someone is there sort of holding your hand or taking you for a walk or saying, yeah, I feel like that too. That, that helps. Some people step out in a very positive attitude and some they will like obeys to be looking at the pictures or they will play with the thoughts, like the past thoughts and should be allowed. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I 
mean, uh, how much can you regulate other people's minds? You know, we may assume certain behavior is, is, uh, is necessary, or, but that's an assumption. You know, often children are, don't have those assumptions, and you can, and you can impose assumptions on them um, to a way that's not, not helpful. I mean, some things should be encouraged, such as generosity and nonviolence, and, and say why. Like, if you do this, she's not going to want to play with you anymore. And if we share things, we're more comfortable with each other. Um, so we, but then things like powerful emotions like grief, if you just say snap out of it, then what happens is the person doesn't develop a proper relationship with grief. You know, they, they, they repress it. They think it's something they shouldn't have. You know, everybody does have it. It's natural. Even elephants have grief. <laughs> So, but then what can often happen with things like that is you have times when you feel really, oh, you know, and then your mind comes out for something else and suddenly, oh, it's fine, it's okay, and then you go down again. It doesn't just come for seven days and then finished, it comes and goes in waves. But the most important thing is that you, you maintain a sense of empathy and relationship with your children, with other people. So that you go through it together. And it's, it's a very important principle for everyone. You know, even in meditation, I've known people who meditate on their own and go, go slightly crazy because they just get lost in their own mental habits. And the most simple, very simple um, gift we have is that each other's presence. You know, just being present with each other. It sounds so obvious and so nothing that you think it doesn't mean anything. But it, it does. You know, the presence of other people does help to prevent the mind from spinning out into strange worlds, uh, getting lost in habits. It's not even other people doing anything, but just that there's a sense of clear awareness of other people. There's something about that that gives a signal to the heart as to where the real things are. Yeah? And for children that's very important because children learn, you know, huge amount just from being with other their parents and their other children. That's mostly where they learn. They don't learn at school. They do learn at school, but what they learn at school is how to <laughs> you know, they learn to stuff on top, but of that, but the real fundamental human qualities are learned through the skin, through the pores, through just being with other people and noticing people being calm, steady, and warm-hearted, and that has an effect in establishing that quality in oneself. When we establish that sense of calm and steadiness in ourselves, then our own grief, our rage, our anger, our can finds a place where it starts to finish itself. You can't, you can't educate someone out of grief. Yeah. But you can provide, help them to grow the resources in themselves for handling. And you do that 
simply through being present. Talking, are you feeling? Okay. How is it now? Yeah? Yeah? yeah. Here I am. Go for a walk together. If you need me, ask me. So that the person doesn't go off on their own. Particularly for children. And then different people go through different states, you know. Some people don't seem to have much grief, other people have a lot of it. I think the Sadness is a kind of slight defilement of compassion. Yeah, yeah. Or, or, or a diminution of it. Because um, it carries the quality of regret. bigger than that. It means we allow the pain and the separations of life to be present and the heart doesn't go, oh no, it is happy with that. It's much more undefended. Heart doesn't contract. So so compassion, though we all have the faculty of that, it has to be developed. It's developed through wisdom. You know, so you begin to, as natural sense of pain that we see when we see something else suffer. And, oh dear, I shouldn't suffer. Oh, I don't want them to suffer. That, that's fine. You have to develop it. So it becomes, um, right now, uh, I can't stop their suffering, but I can be present with it. <coughs> with it in a peaceful way. Not peace for myself, but actually recognizing the quality of your own peace and openness has an effect on the other person. It's just what I was saying before about the most important thing we can do is offer each other's presence. So if I'm in pain, and you say, oh, I wish you weren't in pain, please don't be in pain, it makes me sad to see you in pain, it's not going to do me any good at all. <laughs> but if you say uh, you're in pain tell me about your pain yeah, I can hear that I can feel that yeah, I'm really with that let's just breathe in and out together with that pain then I feel better that's compassion it means I'm prepared to share your pain I'm not going to cure it I'm going to share it and allow the quality of sharing as its effects which is we feel less alone, less confused, less defensive about our pain. Do you understand that? It's like somebody else makes me bigger. I become part of two rather than just on my own. And then I can manage the pain and the, and the distress of life. Compassion, you know, to feel with in the company of. So obviously, if you're not alone, you think you're so Things that are not really compassionate, then how 
Loved one dying, and you're not there. Well, there's always. It doesn't take long to find someone to be compassionate for. <laughs> it's like you know, how do you develop that 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 feeling of like insult the start, you know, you can you can bring them to mind, and also you recognise that if you just want to develop compassion, you only have to look around the room. <laughs> you <You're> <laughs> You listen to people's stories. You know. yeah. <laughs> yeah. So the Buddha, I mean, the Buddha deliberately walked through the world in order to really, you know, deepen and share his compassion with beings, people with anybody, yeah. uh, because it, it's, it's um, you know, when compassion in a way is quite natural, what is really strange is the lack of it, because for that, when we lack compassion, for that time we don't remember somebody else is going to die, we don't remember somebody else has pain, we don't remember somebody else has problems. We don't remember that somebody else has sickness. We don't remember that somebody else has loved ones who are sick or dying or in pain. But how can you forget these things? You know, is there anybody here who has no pain? <laughs> so when, we come, when you see another person, you see this person is subject to aging, separation, sickness, confusion, pain, distress, blame. You know, it's... it's Practice is something you do, it's the natural way of being. And it essentially, to my mind, it just means that you have that kind of quality of open presence that you just bring into the world. With. And, and you'll find that some people will be able to pick something up from that, and some people won't, won't get it. But, you know, even the Buddha couldn't help everybody. Some people just couldn't get what he was on about couldn't get it at all, uh, or didn't, didn't recognize it. So you just have to shine your light, you know? And, uh, and, and if there's nobody else around, it's still yourself. <laughs> there's, no, there's no end to it, really. One of the real tragedies of our of our human condition is the, is the loss of empathy, fellow feeling, you know, and it's certainly uh, becomes more common when you're in, in cities, big situations where you, you just move past a thousand people without recognizing them because there's so many of them and they're all rushing down to work. You, you can't really, hey, hello, you can't do that. You can't, but I'm going think you're crazy. So you get, or you see people on television screens where there's no relationship. So we live in a world where the relationship experience is very narrow. You maybe have a few people, you know, friends, your partner, your husband, your wife, your cousin or so-and-so, 
and you said that, and the rest of it is just, I don't know, I don't know who she is, who is. So it means that the heart lives in a state of, of loss of relationship, loss of empathy. You know, I was with a friend of mine was going to work, he used to go to work in London every day, commute, get a train from his local town, and, and travel on the train into the big station in London, Waterloo Station. He do this every day, it's like a commuter time, from 7.30 to 8 o'clock. Everybody got on the train at 7.30, they would sit there, the newspapers, <laughs> put in water, get the brief and rush out, yeah. like that. And, and then at five o'clock we do the opposite, rush back again. And all day long, they're like this, just driven, you know, they don't see. And after a while people start to crack up, you know, under the pressure. And he said one, one morning he was going to work, he saw somebody just come off the train, get on the platform, they just broke down. and lay down on the platform, this man just lay down on the platform crying, he just couldn't take it anymore. And other people just walked over, walked around and walked past him. You know, they didn't see him. You know, they saw him with their eyes, they didn't see him with their heart. So my friend, he stopped and, you know, yeah, everybody just walking past, walking past him. So they just don't, they don't see with their heart, it's cut off. This is a tragedy. That's our responsibility, isn't it, really? Yeah? To, to not lose ourselves in our, in our job. I suggest that, uh, you know, some questions have quietened down, so you've probably got enough to think about <laughs> for now. So why don't we just uh, stretch your legs and we'll finish off with a few minutes of, of loving-kindness meditation, finish the session today. sensitivity, emotional sensitivity, and remember bringing to mind 
slowly, carefully the image of any occasion when someone has been kind to you. Yeah. Even if your dog looked at you with a nice, warm, doggy look. <laughs> so remember what it's like to feel appreciated or someone shared or is generous or forgiving towards you. Bring up that, that memory, that perception. the impression of being touched, being uh, affected, being pleased, being believed, you know, that we experience when someone is uh, kind and generous towards ourselves. And then also we may very well have this wish in ourselves to bring forth that quality to anybody specific or to people in general. So well upon that intention and that impression, impression of kindness, generosity of heart. developed at the point where it's almost as if you're sitting in a bathtub or you're sitting in some sunlight you can really just rest and relax into the feeling of being appreciated or of loving other people becomes buoyant may others be well, may they be happy how lovely it is when we can experience this quality of goodwill over something small or large, it doesn't have to be anything apparently important, but just the pure intention, goodwill.
give yourself a break a few minutes from having to figure anything out make the future work, worry about the past give yourself a break to just abide with the quality of right now I can experience goodwill this is enough for me so right now just to experience warm heartedness breathe into that, let your body relax into that Imagine yourself um, lying asleep and as you get that picture, that idea in your mind, look at that, look at yourself with the eye of an affectionate parent, just looking over at you as you're sleeping. You know, may you be well. When you imagine yourself being active, you're still looking, looking on with the eye of someone who wishes to protect, or guide, look after you, looking after your well-being. Telling you not to worry. to try to part have confidence in yourself the eye of compassion and then bring up the perception or the impression of anyone else you'd like to with the same and look at them in the same same heart sense May they be well, free from worry, free from stress, 
May they find their own confidence, free from praise, free from blame. Imagine someone you have some difficulties with. Imagine them being at a distance, like a hundred meters away. And you're feeling, well, may they go their own way, may they learn. Recognizing they too will suffer and have problems. Not to allow one's own mind to be invaded by the sense of ill will. Don't let other people turn your mind into ill will. Become more equanimous. Let them find their own way. Let me not experience ill will or jealousy towards them. May they find their own truth. May they find their own answers. May they abide in peace. the quality of goodwill just move freely around your body, around the people in the room, wherever it wishes to go. People near, far, alive or dead. So that your heart does not contract into regret 
or bitterness, heedlessness, jealousy, feels warm and open. Just letting your senses open up to this room, the other people in the room, with your eyes open, quality of mindfulness, empathy, bringing that to the fore, letting that be there. Thank you. 